Hello, hello, and welcome to episode 13 of Dubliners by Dubliners, the podcast where we discuss James Joyce's short story collection, Dubliners. This week we're covering the 13th story in the collection, A Mother. As always, we have the story linked in the description, and if you're interested in following along with us, you can find us on all the social networks using the handle by Dubliners. If you've been enjoying the podcast, please do give us five stars on Spotify, Apple, or wherever you're listening to this. It would really help us out. I'm your co-host, John, and I'm joined here as always by... Lachlan. Before we jump into the story itself, we're going to look at the theme of women's role in Irish society around the time. Lachlan, do you want to kick us off with that? Sure. Thanks, John. If you've been listening along to the story or to the podcast as we've been working our way through the stories here, you'll know the position that women held in, in, in Irish society. Obviously, they were disenfranchised. They had no right to vote. Education, marriage, work, politics, these are all arenas where women's roles are considerably diminished relative both to men and to the modern day. If I can maybe talk a bit about education. It's interesting, at the time this was written, there was a large participation of women in primary level education, but once you got onto the higher levels of education, and particularly university education, that was often not open to women. And many of the Irish universities actually actually didn't admit women for example Trinity College only started allowing women to take degrees in 1904 general women weren't really given the opportunity to progress to advanced levels for poorer families women's education wasn't seen as being that important and for middle class or aspiring upper class families it was seen as more important that a woman maybe became accomplished which was more learning things to entertain a potential husband rather than educating themselves in things that might further their own careers absolutely John and and I think really you see that feeding through then into the professional sphere where by and large professional careers were fairly limited to domestic servitude or really anything in the almost stereotypical female positions or or roles excluded from the more professional careers that we've seen of some of the other characters in Dubliners such as Mr Duffy working in the bank or even Farrington as a scribe for a a legal firm the only female employed there working in a a secretarial role and at a much more diminished position yeah yeah you're 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 right when you look at Ireland uniquely in the context of Europe Ireland had very little factory jobs so in say northeast Ireland and Belfast in particular there would have been factory work for women in urban settings but in the rest of Ireland there was very little of this sort of work available rural women would be expected to work on the farm and you alluded there to kind of clerking and these sort of uh, lower level admin jobs that would be available and actually this is something that is part of the changes that's happening at this time so although we're talking a lot about status of women and how, how they weren't able to a lot of the things that women they take for granted it was still a time of change and that this education that had taken place that women had been allowed to be educated even up to just a certain level meant that they were taking these kind of these clerking roles also jobs in say retail work where they'd be working with numbers and working as secretaries and so these sort of roles would have been much more prestigious than the, the other sort of roles you, you mentioned which the large majority of, of women would have worked in their role was seen as managing the household and having responsibility for ensuring that children were born and raised the family was fully dressed, clothed, fed and attended mass really are the, the core principles or, or core functions and activities that women would have been responsible for within the, the, the realm of a marriage in, in Ireland around this time. We did talk about marriage briefly in, in a previous episode. One of the habits or the traditions in Ireland at this time was use of a dowry. The father or the family of the bride would give money to the husband or the family of the husband on the occasion of the marriage. So it was almost kind of expected that if, if this new family was to support your daughter that you would have to give some money in order to 
incentivize incentivize the the whole affair absolutely and it's actually interesting in this story specifically you almost see that transition from marriage as a societal ritual marriage as a political alignment tool to to something akin to a a deposit or or a sale of of women yeah it becomes very much a a financial transaction almost yeah and it's, it's interesting as well speaking of ireland specifically that ireland at this time has one of the lowest marriage rates in europe and it also has very high immigration rates so yeah you could see this the state of marriage in Ireland and the opportunities available to women meant that a lot of people either didn't marry or or left the country. So maybe then a brief note just on what was happening then politically at the time, because this is a time when feminism was developing in the in the public consciousness and becoming a political force. There, there were efforts to first of all to win the franchise for women, to win the vote for women, and also to gain access to third level education. Some of those activists were people that Joyce knew. Hannah Sheehy Skeffington was one of the founders of the Irish Women's Franchise League. She founded that in 1908, so a little bit after the time this was written. Joyce would have known her and her brother, Richard Sheehy, and her husband, Francis Sheehy Skeffington. So Francis Sheehy Skeffington, he took his wife's name. Francis Sheehy Skeffington and Joyce published a set of essays together so they were both rejected for publication for their individual essays. Joyce's was The Day of Derablement which was his complaint about the Irish theatre at the time and plays that were being performed and Francis Sheehy Skeffington's essay was a forgotten aspect of the university question and it was uh, on the theme of third level education access for women and so they, they published this together but with the caveat that they added a preface saying each writer is responsible only for what appears under his own name so there was a little bit of a reluctance there to embrace each other's ideas. So it's interesting to get that little bit of perspective on Joyce's opinion on the, the feminist struggles that were happening at the time. Absolutely. To, to bring you through the story of a mother, interestingly, and, and, and a note that we'll probably pick up on, it opens with a description of a man, Mr. Holohan, or Hoppy Holohan. He is a member of the Era Abu Society, or Ireland to Victory in English, responsible for the Irish nationalist revival and, and linked to this Celtic revival artistic nationalistic movement that was prevalent at at this time and in brief he approaches Mrs Carney to arrange a series or to have her daughter participate in a a series of four concerts that he's arranging on behalf of the Arabu Society Mrs Carney's daughter to appear as an accompanist pianist in this over the course of arranging this, Miss Carney realises that Mr. Holan is completely incapable and she effectively takes control of management of the, all of the arrangements for the concert, arranging the sequence of artists, the running bill, etc. Specifically as part of this, she arranges a contract for her daughter for eight guineas, which is in modern money, 700, 800 euro. Over the course of the four concerts, the first concert is a Wednesday night, incredibly badly attended, very short and, and describes a rabble or a rabblement, so linking probably linking back to, to Joyce's own uh, essay on this matter. The second concert is better attended but still poor showing overall and has a lot of paper tickets or, or paper filling the, the stands so the idea of uh, basically just tickets handed out on the uh, at the door to, to passers-by rather than purchased. They cancelled the third night of the concert in favour of a big bang on the final Saturday night. It's this final night where we have the complete destruction, I suppose, of the relationship between Mrs. Carney, Mr. Holan, various other characters that we'll, we'll get into as we, we discuss the story in depth. Ultimately, the, this this concludes with Miss Carney marching off at the end of the evening with her daughter having only been paid four pounds, which is just shy of half of uh, eight guineas, eight guineas being eight pounds and eight shillings. Yeah, so not a not a happy ending for Mrs. Carney. It's an interesting story. It's one of four stories in the collection with a female protagonist. Uh, but it's interesting that it doesn't open with Mrs. Carney. So the story itself 
the perspective Joyce takes is it largely follows Mrs. Carney, but it also, the viewpoint moves away at different points in the story. It's interesting that the opening section is not Mrs. Carney, but rather a description of Mr. Hollihan. I also think it's interesting the fact that this is chosen as the opening paragraph in a story about Mrs. Carney. It kind of sets the tone that this story is not happening on her terms. It starts and ends with descriptions of men or descriptions of what men are doing. And so she is playing inside this world that starts and ends with men. Yeah, no, definitely. I think... um it's, it's interesting looking at the, if I, if I can jump to kind of the critical analysis just very briefly and, and, and touch on that at, at an abstract level. It was interesting, a lot of the initial critical responses perceived Mrs. Carney as the aggressor, framed the, the narrative or framed the, the critical response to this as a demonstration of Joyce outlining a vignette of this is a terrible woman or an unpleasant woman or a, an uncomfortable woman to deal with. It's only really in, in, in recent years that fresher critical analysis has almost inverted that position in its entirety and, and really considers this to be, as I say, a, a, a nearly a proto-feminist piece that cleverly outlines and defines exactly the challenges faced by women in society at the time and can be read as maybe not quite sympathetic but certainly um, understanding of the challenges and trials faced by women as, as, as they try to assert themselves. Yeah, I saw similar things when I was reading over some of the critical analysis. I, I, I think a key part to the re-contextualization uh, or the re-understanding of Mrs. Carney is having an understanding of her background. Yeah, we, we'll get into maybe her discussion of her behavior on the nights or on the nights in question, but I think you have to bear in mind her whole history when you're discussing her as a character. Yeah, right right after this section of Mr. Hulhan, we get a description of Mrs. Carney's background and it starts with quite a dramatic sentence, which is Miss Devlin had become Mrs. Carney out of spite. I guess you can kind of see maybe where some of those initial readings were coming from with characterising her as being someone motivated by spite. We learned she went to a convent and she learned music and French. Again, this kind of idea that women need to be accomplished, be a housewife, basically. Normally women were, were expected to learn languages like French and not languages like Latin and Greek, which were considered more uh, higher level educational languages. So yeah, here we see her learning French. But the outcome of all this is that, again, a great sentence here by Joyce is she sat amid the chilly circle of her accomplishments. So she has accomplished a lot. She's good at singing. She's great manners. But ultimately, she hasn't found a husband as a result. Maybe alluding to what you mentioned earlier, Lachlan, in terms of what the marriage situation in Ireland was like at the time. You know, I think Joyce is almost presenting Mrs. Carney as a problem to be solved in that she is so accomplished and so successful that she exudes an air of unapproachability and arguably untamability. I think, is, is is maybe quite a strong word to, to describe it, but I, I think that's maybe what Joyce is alluding to. The quote that actually follows the quote you read there, um, the young men whom she met were ordinary and she gave them no encouragement, trying to console her romantic desires by eating a great deal of Turkish delight in secret. Telling that Joyce resists presenting us with any physical description of Miss Carney in this, despite the fact that Mr. Holohan, one of the first things we learn about him is that he has a game leg and that his friends called him Hoppy Holohan. I think Joyce is right away kind of giving us a distinction there between these male characters that we're not immediately meant to empathise with or, or, or to find great solace with and then Mrs. Carney, her presence is entirely defined by her achievements and her academic and intellectual abilities rather than her physicality. I think the other thing then, if I can drive us forward a little bit there and this is a key point is the reference to her romantic desires one of the key means of interpreting Mrs. Carney throughout this is is to consider her romantic when we talk about her, her married life or as she describes her, her married life Mrs. Carney perceived that such a man would wear better than a romantic person but she never put her own romantic ideals away 
Joyce is really reinforcing within a, a very short passage referencing romance and romantic desires of Mrs. Carney throughout. We and, and, and you as readers should always bear that in mind. The romantic desires of Mrs. Carney. She has a particular vision of the world that just simply doesn't align with the reality. And while she's capable of operating within this world, she has never really given up on that desire. Yeah, absolutely. I think that statement that she never put away her romantic ideas comes right on the heel of the description of her marriage. She eventually, when her her friends begin to loosen their tongues is the phrase that's used. So people start criticizing her. People start maybe saying she's getting old. And it's at that point she decides to marry. She marries Mr. Carney, who's a bootmaker. So she's entered not a super secure, well-off life, but one in which she has a reasonable level of comfort. And she expects that this man will wear better. So they have an understanding of each other. I actually think their, their relationship is an interesting one because even though it's born out of pragmatic reasons there's a certain level of affection there or there's definitely a certain level of mutual respect i maybe briefly read out just the, the paragraph that kind of highlights that at some party in a strange house when she lifted her eyebrow ever so slightly he stood up to take his leave and when his cough troubled him she put the eider down quilt over his feet and made a strong rum punch so there is a sense that in both cases that any discomfort the other one feels their partner will try to address it definitely and i mean i think as well it's telling that he is older than her. There's almost a suggestion that Mrs. Carney is a woman out of her time. She would probably have fared and succeeded a lot better had she been 50 years older than she was or even 30 years older than she was. I think in the case of the disparity in age, I think it wasn't uncommon. In fact, I think it would be relatively common for women to marry men who were a a bit older than them, but it would be hard to imagine her marrying someone younger. There's definitely some, some affinity there between her and manners and and how things should be that is maybe something that's falling away in society and also is kind of being renegotiated with the birth of this Gaelic Catholic consciousness in terms of what society should be so they're kind of trying to interpret themselves in terms of a new Irishness but still retaining some of these ideas about English sense of manners or English sense of what is class or how you should act in social situations and so all these things are kind of up for grabs and so yeah in Mrs. Carney's case you definitely see an allegiance to an older set of values which may be tied to her marriage to an older man. Yes, I I think that tellingly kind of leads on to Mrs. Carney's daughters and obviously the trigger for the title of the story, A Mother. Mrs. Carney has two daughters, Kathleen. I don't believe the other daughter is named. Kathleen, we're told, is sent to a good convent and then onwards to the academy where she would have perfected her musical career. It's interesting then, Mrs. Carney is broadly allowing her daughter or forcing her daughter or facilitating her daughter, depending on your perception of her, to follow in her footsteps and... Then I think the critical passage then is when the Irish revival began to be appreciable. Mrs. Carney determined to take advantage of her daughter's name and brought an Irish teacher to the house. So to that point on an old school perception of the world as the Irish revival is coming into vogue, if I could say that, Mrs. Carney takes the opportunity to teach her daughter, in addition to the French that she's learned at the convent and the, the musical skills she's developed, to teach her Irish and to ensure that she has a position or a recognition within the, the Irish nationalist movement. Yeah, Mrs. Carney's relationship with the Irish Revival is an interesting one that I think comes out over the course of the concert, which is one point in terms of specifically that she sends Kathleen to the convent and that she learns French and music. Sentences are almost exactly the same between how Mrs. Carney herself grew up and how she's bringing up her daughter. So like with a lot of stories in Dubliners, you get the sense of continuation between generations that things don't change or at least that within family situations that families who are stuck by paralysis or stuck by these problems aren't able to pass on a better life for the next generation. As the quote says, she's uh, determined to take advantage of her daughter's name. So Kathleen is the name used by Yates 
in a one-act play that he wrote. I believe it's actually called Kathleen Houlihan. That is an allegorical story of Irish destruction and, and I suppose the, the subjugation of Ireland by, by British rule and a call to arms or a call to action and the request for a blood sacrifice made by Irish men and women to regain and retake the, the nation and define Irish nationalism as a independent nation and, and, and effectively establish Ireland as, a, as an independent country. Yeats uses this figure of Kathleen and, and, and the idea of Kathleen as a, as a cipher for Ireland or the physical embodiment of Ireland throughout a number of his works. Right, yeah, so this is kind of his use of her daughter's name to book the Irish revival it's a little bit shallow in some ways or it's a little bit transparent and we see a similar thing in A Little Cloud where the protagonist of that story wants to change his name to make it more appealing as a writer again these things that, that don't really speak to a true artistry and are, are more of a self-promoting angle the fact that Mrs. Carney takes these kind of steps for her daughter I think has led some critics to see her as this grasping material person they've seen the criticism of the Irish revival movement in Joyce is wrapped up in the criticism of Mrs. Kearney. She is acting in a way to further her daughter's career, but I don't know if you can really hold that against her all that much. I think given the opportunities that were available to her in her past and then her thinking things forward for her own daughter, it's a little bit more defensible than, uh, say, Little Chandler and a Little Cloud. Definitely. I think there's a an approach taken by critics to, to consider Mrs. Kearney here as a, a mercenary or a very monetarily focused individual and, and simply taking advantage of the Irish revival movement whereas I think if you step back from the story and, and look at the actual flow of the entire narrative it's the Abu Era society the, the victory for Ireland who are an explicitly nationalist society who are the ultimate failures they can't produce concerts whatever shots Joyce is taking at Mrs Carney in terms of her mercenary approach to the Irish revival movement he's very much decrying the, the Irish nationalist movement and, and at least its artistic arm as incompetent and a failure and, 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 and something of a joke, really. So the outcome of all this is that we hear, and I'll read out the quote, Soon the name of Miss Kathleen Kearney began to be heard often on people's lips. People said that she was very clever at music and a very nice girl, and moreover that she was a believer in the language movement. So again, you see this tying together of advancement and nationalism or the language movement. But also you have this phrase, a very nice girl. This sentence comes at the end of a paragraph where we get the sense that Mrs. Kearney has kind of engineered this, that her daughter's name will be on people's lips, that people will think about her but one of the things that she's engineered is that people think of her as a very nice girl which is what you need to be to fit in this society and that phrase just remember that phrase very nice girl because it's going to come up again right towards the end we'll jump on then to the talking about the organizing of the concerts themselves once the Carneys have integrated themselves in the nationalist community and Mr. Holohan then has asked Mrs. Carney if her daughter wants to perform at these concerts they sit down and arrange the concerts Mr. Holohan is useless <laughs> from from what we hear he, he stands and he talks in corners but he doesn't seem to make progress and Mrs. Carney is the one who does a lot of the organizing here yeah it's telling as well that the organization and management of these concerts and, and all the work that's performed by Mrs. Garney takes place in her drawing room where she's feeding Mr. Holohan with wine and biscuits. The interactions here where Miss Carney is seen as her most successful and most productive are all tied to her physically being located in her house and when the remaining interactions with Mr. Holohan that we see across the rest of the story unfold, those are all taking place at the concert hall where it's very much a male-dominated space. I think Joyce is definitely drawing attention to the dominance of women within the domestic space or domestic sphere and domination of men outside of that domestic sphere. 
Yeah, it's, it's interesting that there's the occasional language Joyce uses, which is the language of coercion or of people having to do something. So here we hear in the domestic space that she brought him into the drawing room, made him sit down. So again, she's not physically forcing him to sit down, but just the language there made him sit down suggests that suggests a level of force. Later, we see that similar sort of language of people having to do things or people being made to do things comes up in other parts of the story. Only in this domestic scene or only in the scene in the drawing room do we see where Mrs. Carney really has the agency to make people do things, whereas in other parts of the story, it's her or other female characters being made to do stuff. Definitely. The key thing to take away then as well from this section as well as the establishment of the contract and the definition of the contract terms being a guineas. We have kind of brief scenes with Mrs. Carney going shopping in Brown Thomas, one of the few institutions referenced in Dublin is that, that remains uh, viable in, in Dublin today. You can still go to Brown Thomas. Uh, I don't know if they sell Charmuse anymore. If I can maybe jump in there. It's interesting, the contract in this case it wasn't a document that had a huge amount of legal binding it was more a question of good name bear, bear in mind that this contract isn't such a, a shut and close sort of legal thing fully determined and rather weaker than that we jump to the Wednesday night and the, the, the opening night of the concerts I think immediately there's a panic strikes Mrs. Carney as she arrives 20 minutes early and there's nothing going on there's basically just a few young men wearing bright blue badges in their coats stood idle in the vestibule none of them wore evening dress these are meant to be the ushers or I suppose the people bringing people to their seats and showing people around if, if they're standing idle they're not even appropriately dressed for a proper concert she's immediately setting off alarm bells that everything may not be as expected here on the first night and that, that initially kicks off the, the anxiety with her You've described her earlier as she's a romantic We've spoken of her marriage as being the thing of mutual compassion or care but not a, a romantic thing so she's really thrown herself into the organising of this concert she seems to have taken care of a lot of the details so when the concert itself comes along and it is a failure it's fair to say at least the first night she's understandably crushed she's she doesn't show it immediately but it starts to come out in, in different ways and then i think where she falls back on or falls back to is that anger she the feeling she has and she starts to judge the people she's dealing with in particular i think there's a scene with mr fitzpatrick who's introduced at this point he's the secretary of the era abu society so she starts noticing lots of things about him like how he wears his hat but then also while he's talking to her he's chewing the program so he's chewing the paper of the program in his hand and he's got a chew to a pulp for mrs carney who's brought up to be marley who's brought up to have a kind of a level of class not acting in a way she would consider dignified there's a natural conflict there between her and the organizers i also wonder if there's on his part if this chewing is some sort of a nervous reaction to having to deal with her because he doesn't know how to deal with a sort of woman in the public sphere certainly as we meet mr fitzpatrick he's immediately presented to a similar to mr holan as a comic but not funny character I guess is, is, is maybe the way I'd describe him he's somewhat dishevelled I suppose is probably the casual term I'd use to describe both the physical descriptions given to us by Joyce the first night really ends pretty abruptly there's not much else going on on, on, on the first night beyond meeting Mr Fitzpatrick other than uh, the line from Mrs Carney and the artistes said Mrs Carney of course, they are doing their best, but really, they are not good. Mr. Holohan admitted that the artistes were no good, but the committee, he said, had decided to let the first three concerts go as they pleased and reserve all the talent for the Saturday night. As you said, John, I think even right here on the first night, there is an 
admission from Mr. Olin that the, the artists that they've got for the concert aren't great and there's a bit of a laissez-faire come what may attitude toward how the performances are going to pan out over the course of the week and obviously this is rubbing up against and, and, and immediately kind of distinguishing Mrs. Carney from Mr. Holland and Mr. Fitzpatrick uh, in terms of their perception of the significance of this event and the standards against which I suppose they're, they're judging or expecting this to be performed. Yeah and, and this continues into the next night where again the Thursday night I think there's more seats filled but they're, they're paper seats that they're people who were just handed tickets and they're described as the audience behaved indecorously as if the concert were an informal dress rehearsal. People w- weren't really caring all that much about the concert itself. They just showed up maybe because they got free tickets. Well, yeah, Mrs. Carney's anger develops across the course of this night. And during this night as well, she learns that the following night, the Friday night, uh, will be cancelled and that the committee is going to put all their efforts into making the Saturday night a success. So now instead of having the initial four concerts that are supposed to go ahead, there's now only going to be three. And I think at this point, Mrs. Carney, she makes an issue about being paid for the four nights, that it's important to her that she's going to be paid for the four nights so I think what we see here is that her romantic ideal of what the concerts were meant to be what they were meant to signify for her and maybe for her daughter as well has been wiped away and now her only concern is the financial one yeah there's a scene here that's telling where quote is Mr Fitzpatrick seemed to enjoy himself he was quite unconscious that Mrs Carney was taking angry note of his conduct he stood at the edge of the screen from time to time jutting out his head and exchanging a laugh with two friends in the corner of the balcony you've got this presentation of Mrs Carney silently sitting there taking note of everything that's going on around her and getting progressively more frustrated and upset with what's happening juxtaposed with Mr Fitzpatrick poking his head out the screen having a chat and a laugh with a couple of people up at the balcony and very much at home in this space and in the, in the concert hall as distinct from Mrs Carney and we talked a bit about the, the physicality and, and another thing just to highlight and I think we've got a couple more quotes on this as well later on is the concert hall is a difficult place for Mrs Carney to navigate she's constantly getting lost looking through dark and pokey awkward shaped corridors and things like that whereas the male characters all seem to be perfectly at home and in this space they're joking they're jovial they all know where all the rooms are they're always wherever they need to be and Miss Carney is always stuck looking for them and searching around not able to find them within this space the strategy that Mr. Houlihan and Mr. Fitzpatrick employ at this stage to divert Mrs. Carney's anger is to say that it's a matter for the committee so regarding her payment for the four concerts that this is something that needs to be determined by the committee which is again the physical space is uncomfortable for Mrs. Carney but I think the social space if we if we talk about it in that terms how to socially interact in this space is determined uh, by rules that disadvantage her for the simple fact that she's a woman. Yeah, that is it. Following this Thursday night revelation at the absence of Friday night concert, Mrs. Carney has a discussion with Mr. Carney. We get another little insight into their relationship and Mrs. Carney's perception of her husband. I don't know, John, if you want to read this quote, I know this is one of your favourites. Yeah, I, I do like this one. It's, she respected her husband in the same way as she respected the general post office as something large, secure and fixed. And though she knew the small number of his talents, she appreciated his abstract value as a male. Pretty devastating attack on Mrs. Carney's husband, I would say. In it, not you know she's not she's not dismissing him directly. She appreciates him, but I think Joyce is revealing it to us in that moment. Maybe how useless he actually is. Yeah, I think uh, as my as my mother would say, she's damning him with faint praise. The limitations of his talents, the small number of them. But it's at this point that Mrs. Carney decides to bring Mr. Carney with her, effectively retreating into the protection of a man. And her expectation, her hope is that when he comes with her to the concert is as she calls it herself is a 
abstract value as a man will enable her to execute on her plans and for her to have everything going the way she needs it to or wants it to. Then finally we come to the Night of the Grand Concert King. There's an interesting quote here. Despite everything we've just talked about in the preceding passages, a quote here. Mrs. Carney placed her daughter's clothes and music in charge of her husband and went all over the building looking for Mr. Holohan or Mr. Fitzpatrick. She could find neither. Even though in this discussion, in this plan, she's going to bring her husband, he's going to be acting on her behalf or at least providing her the abstract value as a male. She immediately deposits the daughter's clothes and music with him and effectively pushes him into the role of a woman or into what would be perceived as the role of a woman in terms of minding the clothes, minding the music, effectively managing the daughter while she goes off and conducts or manages the business aspect of the participation of the concert. Yeah, it's, it's interesting as well. We've briefly mentioned the title of the story being a mother, but here we see Mrs. Carney's preoccupation is maybe not necessarily with her daughter uh, or how her daughter fares at this concert, but rather it has become more to do with her relationship with Mr. Hulahan and principle of that whole interaction. The fact that she leaves the clothes behind with the father is, is maybe a foreshadowing of how she treats her daughter a little bit later. Indeed. So she's unable to find Mr. Fitzpatrick or Mr. Hulahan, but she is is presented with Miss Byrne, who we are led to believe may or may not be a member of the committee. And I think the quote we get here, Mrs. Carney looked searchingly at the oldish face, which was screwed into an expression of trustfulness and enthusiasm. Miss Byrne, and critically it's, it's Miss Byrne rather than Mrs. Byrne, is an unmarried woman of an oldish face. And she's the only woman who is allowed to participate in the committee. And even with that, she has a, a relatively limited role. Bear Miss Byrne in mind. There's a, there's a key point coming up with her later on in the story. I'll hold off revealing until then. Yeah, we were introduced then to some other characters then at that point after Mrs. Carney's failure to meet Mr. Holohan or Mr. Fitzpatrick. We get to meet some of the other musicians. Again, I think we see here Joyce take shots at the state of the artistic world in Dublin. We have a Mr. Duggan who is a singer, but he came from relatively low or poor background. So when he's singing on stage, he ends up wiping his nose, which the audience reacts badly to. And he's not someone who's a first-rate artist. And similarly, we have a Mr. Bell who is a singer but his claim to fame is that he won a bronze medal in uh, Feshkyol after many years of attempts suggesting he's maybe not the highest caliber of artist and that the people that the era blue society are booking for this are maybe not top quality people but I, I think you have a few points on Mr. Bell in particular Lachlan right? Yeah so Mr. Bell I think it's a, it's an interesting point that Joyce includes specifically that he won the bronze medal in a Feshkyol strongly suggesting that this character is a cipher for Joyce himself Joyce notably came third in a festival concert after refusing to perform the sight reading element of the concert and heavily suggesting that he would have come first place had he agreed to participate in the full suite uh, events. Not found the exact reason why Joyce refused the sight reading element, but it's certainly something that Joyce refers back to as letters and documents and things like that show that it was a, a point of disappointment and, and frustration for him that he did that. So I think specifically calling that out with an association with Mr. Bell is, is, is signposting partly probably Joyce's own position on, on the matter. And, you know, again, we'll talk about this a bit later but Mr. Bell's role within the proceedings later on is significant. Yeah, there's one last artist we're introduced to then, which is Adam Glynn from London. And she enters the room and she has described as having a faded blue dress and a meagre body. You definitely get the impression again of someone who is, all these words, faded and meagre. It's not suggested of success or great capability. We learn she's from London. So again, it's the idea that the Irish artistic scene is taking the cast offs from London or the people who have maybe passed their prime a little bit in the London artistic scene and are now here in Dublin. If I can pick up on one thing, actually, it's telling 
revealing that she's wearing a blue dress here and in an abstract analysis of this you know as we've talked about many times Joyce is very specific in his use of colours the blue dress on a kind of older woman suggests an inverted or corrupted Madonna figure maybe possibly and a presentation of the possible future for either Kathleen or Mrs. Carney herself as her inability to play ball or to succeed within the realm of this confines or condemns her to a life as a, a failed Madonna figure or has become decrepit old but still carries the, the blue clothing. Yeah, it's interesting. She doesn't seem particularly comfortable in this space. The description here is, Madame Glynn took her stand in the corner of the room, holding a roll of music stiffly before her and from time to time changing direction of her startled gaze. It feels almost like a description of, a, of an animal that's, that's afraid of being attacked or something, that she's a bit startled and she's very stiff and she's looking from side to side, not at all comfortable. So her playing ball or, or, or engaging in this world has not led to a positive outcome for her. Other than the artists, we meet some people from the paper. So there's a journalist who's introduced as the Freeman Man, or the Freeman Man, and another person who is with him called Mr. Madden Burke. The Freeman man, who, interestingly enough, we don't learn his name until he's practically left the story, but he takes his time. He is actually not going to write the review. He has decided that he has something else to attend that night and that, yeah, O'Madden Burke will write the review instead. So the Freeman man is, is taking his time and he's about to leave when Miss Healy starts to flirt with him. And there's a, an interesting quote um, in terms of his reaction to that. He was old enough to suspect one reason for her politeness, but young enough in spirit to turn the moment to account. Miss Healy is, you know, hoping to perhaps perhaps gain advantage of a good review in the paper. While the Freeman man is happy to bask in her attention a little bit, all the while knowing, of course, that largely relevant how she behaves to him because he's not going to write the review. I think the next sentence, actually, after you read out there, the warmth, fragrance and colour of her body appealed to his senses. He was pleasantly conscious that the bosom which he saw rise and fall slowly beneath him rose and fell at that moment for him that the laughter and fragrance and willful glances were his tribute and it's, uh, it's exactly that it's a tribute Joyce is really signposting Miss Healy is doing this as an offering in the hopes of him casting off or providing her with some positive support but there's no contractual relationship there's no predefined if I do X you'll do Y it's a tribute and a hope and a hope expectation that this will curry favour for her but with no guarantee again I think Joyce is just highlighting the precarious position that all the female characters are in to, to some extent or another across the story. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it echoes the relationship that Mrs. Carney herself has in terms of organising this whole concert and her expectations and what she's going to get. And then ultimately it comes down to some extent to the goodwill of the men involved with her and she doesn't really have much recourse. All of this is, of course, leads to the main confrontation in the story. This moment before they're due to go on stage to sing for the first time. Mrs. Carney has had enough. She's had enough of Mr. Hulhan and Mr. Fitzpatrick who are very casual, who aren't taking the organisation seriously enough she's had enough of how they've been treating her and so she puts her foot down and says that her daughter Kathleen isn't going to go on stage until she gets paid her money no one knows how to react to this Mr Hullohan is a little bit perplexed a little bit caught off guard they're all a little upset everyone's looking around awkwardly eventually then Mr Hullohan gets half the money or almost half the money four shillings short uh, hands it to her and at that stage her daughter Kathleen takes the initiative and brings her accompaniment Mr Bell they walk onto the stage yeah so I think right 
right away you're seeing a kind of attention both within the the Carney family and the battle lines are being drawn a little bit here Mr. Holohan providing only four pounds rather than the four pounds four shillings which Miss Carney calls him out on explicitly saying you're four shillings short effectively a battle of wills and then of course Kathleen is the one who breaks rather than Mrs. Carney herself yeah it's interesting Kathleen is embarrassed by her mother at least that's the impression you get from the description in the story Kathleen looked down moving the point of her new shoe it was not her fault her position in society is being damaged in some sense by the way her mother is acting and so Kathleen isn't really on her mother's side here as you said she's the one who breaks she brings Mr. Bell out in order to break the awkwardness of the situation interesting as well maybe a little microcosm of their relationship and of how Kathleen deals with her mother more generally we can all relate to maybe the experience of being a teenager and feeling embarrassed by your parents behavior all the same a very understandable action from Kathleen I think it's telling as well. I think this probably echoes some of the earlier stories we've seen where the sins, the crimes of the parent are, are being revisited on the children. I'm thinking of counterparts and beating his beating his child there and, and similarly little Chandler shouting and screaming at his baby. The frustrations of the parent ultimately play out into the lives of their children and I think this is this is very much what we're, we're seeing here but with a more adult or a more grown-up child figure that makes it a bit more challenging or at least offers an opportunity to break free from that paralysis of like use that word yeah it's, it's interesting you brought up Farrington there because in some ways I think this, this narrative arcs of both those stories in terms of counterparts and, and this story a mother in both cases we see these characters who have slowly more and more taken away from them that they're ripped of their dignity or that they're forced to face more and more disappointments and eventually they react by acting in a way that is Farrington's case I, I was going to say socially unacceptable in Farrington's case he almost gets away with it more here than, than Mrs Kearney it's potentially more personally damaging what Mrs. Carney does and her reaction because she ultimately no one is on her side but the action she takes we sympathise as readers having seen her go down this path much in the same way we've seen Parrington go down a path of humiliation yeah this is it after the first half of the concert everyone gathers back in the dressing room and I think it's a long quote but I'm going to read it all out because I think it's a, it's a useful one and it, it, you, you almost need to know all of this to, to, to be able to, to follow what's going on so all this time the dressing room was a hive of excitement in one corner were Mr. Holohan, Mr. Fitzpatrick, Miss Byrne, two of the stewards, the baritone, the bass, and Mr. O'Madden Burke. Mr. O'Madden Burke said it was the most scandalous exhibition he'd ever witnessed. Miss Kathleen Carney's musical career was ended in Dublin after that, he said. The baritone was asked what did he think of Mrs. Carney's conduct. He did not like to say anything. He had been paid his money and wished to be at peace with men. However, he said that Mrs. Carney might have taken the artistes into consideration. The stewards and the secretaries debated hotly as to what should be done when the interval came. I agree with Miss Byrne, said Mr. O'Madden Burke. Pay her nothing. In another corner of the room were Miss Carney and her husband, Mr. Bell, Miss Healy, and the young lady who had to recite the patriotic piece. Mrs. Carney said that the committee had treated her scandalously. She had spared neither trouble nor expense, and this was how she was repaid. Appreciate that was a long quote, but I think there's a couple of elements to, to pick apart there. First of all, you've got the predominantly male structure or grouping on the one side, kind of representing the Abu Era society and the committee and effectively the group of people who say that she shouldn't be paid or that something should be done here and within that then two specific points are that the, the baritone has been paid his money. This decision to pay or not to pay or when the, the sequence of paying is happening isn't challenged or is there, there's no question that the male participants seem to be getting paid and similarly it's Mr. O'Madden Burke echoes Ms. Byrne's position that she shouldn't be paid. You've got this condemnation of Mrs. Carney by Miss Byrne and uh, 
Mr. Man Burke, he's putting himself at one degree removed in saying that he agrees with Miss Byrne rather than stating outright that he doesn't believe she should be paid. And then I think the final element is the grouping on the other side then, Miss Carney and her husband, and it's Mr. Bell who we've found earlier we, we suspect is a cipher for Joyce and Miss Healy then sitting together with them, although even within that Miss Healy is, is eager to get to the other side of the room but it feels guilty over the, I suppose, her relationship and friendship with Kathleen Carney to stake her claim with the other grouping. Yeah, it's, it's interesting as well the, the protest that they have in terms of Mrs. Carney's Honda. They don't discuss whether or not it's right that she should or shouldn't be paid. What is described as disgraceful or scandalous is that she hasn't thought of the artiste, that she has not maintained social decorum here, that she has upset the, the smooth running of things and that that is what is so absolutely scandalous about this. It's not necessarily the details of the financial arrangement. It's quite telling because it shows that this is a moment when Mrs. Carney perhaps has some agency or has some power over the negotiation that her daughter Kathleen had not yet gone on stage prior and as a result she could have this negotiating position and so she uses that moment but it's exactly at that moment that they say oh it's not appropriate you know you must do things in the acceptable way and Mrs. Carney does that then she's reliant on the goodwill of the committee down the line who will likely try and presumably not pay her the full amount that was agreed so Mrs. Carney has two options to either accept society or to accept the rules of engagement and get cheated or to go against that and then be cast as a pariah and so there's no real path for her to claim a degree of agency here like so many characters in Dubliners the sense of paralysis a sense of they can't act and in Mrs. Carney's case this paralysis seems to come primarily from her gender absolutely I mean I think this boxing in of, of Mrs. Carney is exactly that is, is one of the most explicit examples of paralysis within uh, within the collection at, at this stage then everything kind of blows up you have this final exchange Mr. Holohan began to pace up and down the room in order to cool himself for he felt his skin on fire that's a nice lady he said oh she's a nice lady you did the proper thing Holohan said Mr. O'Maddenburg poised upon his umbrella in approval you've got this ending scene here now where Scarney has left the final line is given to Mr. O'Maddenburg poised upon his umbrella in approval so sitting there a complete outsider with no authority within this Abu Era society no real significance or, or meaning or decision making power over the course of events and he's just adjudicating on things balancing on his umbrella telling everyone else what they should be doing and it's his final line is an endorsement of Mr. Holohan again so Mrs. Carney is completely robbed of agency even in, in, in the structure of the story itself in terms of the denouement moment is it really hers to have or hers to, to own exclusively it's, it's, it's shared with the, the male characters Right yeah the story starts now and the effective of men are, are focused on men the closing line uh, oh she's a nice lady it echoes what was said about Kathleen in the, in the early segments when uh, Mrs. Carney was trying to build up a reputation for Kathleen as someone who was involved with the Irish cultural revival this is turned against her here that Mrs. Carney hasn't been a nice lady and this is criticism that's levelled at her and interesting again this, this Mr. O'Madden Burke given the final line as you said Lachlan he's a, a kind of a nobody in this story he arrives in with the free man a man and he's the one who's going to write the review so he's the one who gets to describe everything who has the final word in the story but also is the one who will write about the show so he's the one who will determine how the public sees everything interesting as well the way Mr. O'Madden Burke is described when he's entered is that his magniloquent western name was the moral umbrella upon which he balanced the fine problem of his finances O'Madden Burke, this kind of double-barreled name suggests perhaps came from wealth, came from, you know, two important families. This name being what he balances his finances on is, suggests that he's reliant on this good name to um, borrow money, basically. So he's a man in debt. Nonetheless, because of his position in society, he is able to have agency. He's to have the final word. Mrs. Kearney is the exact opposite. That's, that's it. There is a clear juxtaposition between these two characters and his ability to operate within this environment 
almost seamlessly integrating himself into and ingratiating himself into the rooms of the labyrinthine concert hall with, with seemingly no issue and, and to insert himself into the discussion around whether or not she should be paid is quite jarring compared with the work that Mrs. Carney has put into arranging these concerts and into the management of the concerts themselves all of which I think it's notable she did for no recompense herself despite obviously having a strong hand in the entire process one final thought and we'll, we'll include a link to the essay that thoughts on this are coming from in my research one avenue of analysis for this story that I found quite interesting I query whether it's 100% accurate or not but um, Mrs. Carney's maiden name or her, her name before she married Devlin there is a line or a train of thought that suggests that this is meant to link her to the character of Anne Devlin who was Robert Emmett's partner supporter and ne- never wife but a strong assistant to him in his failed rebellion at the turn of the 19th century in Ireland so approximately 100 years or so before this story is set there was a failed rebellion in Dublin leveraging heavily on French resources from the French Revolution and meant to be landing in Cork and, and providing support for the rebellion it ultimately came to nothing but there are quite a number of interesting parallels between and, and nuggets of information in this story that have echoes or significant echoes with I suppose the real life events around both the rebellion and, and Devlin aside from the name there's the general descriptions of Anne Devlin she was considered to be an incredibly intelligent woman relatively rugged I guess or, or a, a savvy political operator who could be argued to be the, the driving force or, or one of the main leverages behind Robert Emmett's failed rebellion specifically then as well Mr. Carney he's a bootmaker based on Ormond Key and Robert Emmett would have hid in following the failed rebellion hid out in a house of a shoemaker on Ormond Key so again possibly a specific point of reference there for Joyce but one interesting side note then just that I found particularly interesting Aunt Evelyn after the failed rebellion and the execution of Robert Emmett she was imprisoned in originally Dublin Castle and then later Kilmainham Jail and tortured while trying to extract the names of other participants in the rebellion and, and other collaborators she never gave up the names and there is a story that during one of these torture sessions she managed to break free her arm and strangled the man who was torturing her until he was able to alert the other guards and had, was, was very close to successfully killing him which again triggered a thing for me and, and there's a reference in this story in the exchange with, with Mr. Holan at the end while Mrs. Carney is very upset she says and what way did you treat me? asked Mrs. Carney her face was inundated with an angry colour and she looked as if she would attack someone with her hands again if we take these narratives stories about Anne Devlin, historical, real-life historical figure and strong female character tied to the Irish nationalistic movement. You can you can see a parallel there with Miss Carney threatening to but 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 not quite acting out in, 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 in strangling a man with his cravat. Yeah, an interesting parallel, not one I'd heard of before. So, I mean, I think that's it for me in terms of the, the analysis of the story. What was your impression of the story overall, Lachlan? How did you feel about it? Yeah, so I think this is, again, I know we've said this a few times, and I think this is, is true of a lot of the stories in, in the collection, but it's one that definitely rewards multiple readings. I think as I was coming back to it for the first time in a couple of months since I'd read it the first time, I think it was, oh yeah, Miss Carney, she's kind of a bit of a battle axe, I think was the, <laughs> the word knocking around in my head, or slightly derogatory, aggressive 
aggressive, pushy woman who ultimately suffers or, or causes the downfall of her family as a result of unintended consequences of being overly aggressive. But on reading it multiple times, it is actually the male characters who are physically and from a, if you look at this through a Joycean perspective, he is very cognizant of physical description tends to mirror the mental or social or metaphysical character of an individual. So in, in that sense, then I'm reading it from that lens. Then I said, okay, well, take it on face value. She hasn't done anything wrong. She is asserting her rights as, you know, she is entitled to. And it's the fact that the other artists, the male artists got paid, they got what they wanted. And there is a, an almost boys club where they're pushing this Miss Byrne, that's heavily suggested to be a kind of older unmarried woman has, has almost been absorbed into this. And it's these characters are the ones who are putting down Mrs. Carney and attributing difficult woman or this challenging woman attitude towards her. Whereas in reality, then I think you come away with a much more sympathetic view of Miss Carney at, at, at the end, take, taking that kind of perception of it. Yeah, it's, it's an interesting one. All right. I think I also, I have a tendency to black and white judge people sometimes, you know, and Mrs. Carney fluctuates between the camps depending on what context I bear in mind. I think ultimately, yeah, you have to see her in the round and have to see the society she's operating in. While while I, I can imagine personally interacting with her, I would find it difficult. I sympathise with her as a character and I fully understand that, as we've said throughout this, there is no avenues open to her that she's ruined no matter what she does, that ultimately she's not destined to live a fulfilled life purely because she's a woman which is a really tragic thing so a lot of the other characters in Dubliners they also have things about them and sometimes like in a painful case you have Mr Duffy who's very austere and so on and has got a romantic life whereas you don't see this here in Mrs Carney she's remained open to the world uh, she's still longing for something more but there really is just no avenue open to her I think it is a sort of a feminist story one of the critics I was reading it, uh, Janie Miller and she makes the argument that although Joyce's public statements weren't always super feminist like as I said he didn't necessarily want to be aligned with Francis Sheehy Scavington and his essay about university question Joyce's attitude towards realism or towards depicting the, the struggles of everyday Dubliners naturally takes on a feminist quality because it's impossible not to if you set out to accurately describe what is alienating or what is causing paralysis for a female character in Dublin you're never be going to run up against these structures that are causing it I think in some ways it's sort of a feminist text I also enjoyed reading it over as I said find myself flip-flopping on my attitude to Mrs. Kearney find her an annoying character but uh, one that I understand oh, yeah as you say that one, one thought I have is she's probably one of the most real characters in the collection some of the some of the characters can be a, I think it'd be a gross misstatement to say they're, they're two-dimensional choices is, is absolutely a champion of, of, of creating three-dimensional realistic characters but even within that I feel like Miss Carney is, is is one of the most fully realized characters or at least that we have a a full perspective on her and her life in a way that some of the other characters are narrowly defined by the circumstances in which they're in or the narratives and the stories in which they are presented. Yeah, I, I suppose with a short story, it's it's hard to give much more than a short perspective on, on, on someone or a particular instant in their life. Definitely a, a very well-rounded character. I think what we're seeing in, the, in this story, the last one and, and the next one, is focusing on public life. So we see these characters 
not just their internal life, but how they interact with society at large, which I think maybe gives you a more rounded view of the characters sometimes. Conversely, you're given less insight into their interior life, but in this case, I think Joyce finds a, a good balance. No, absolutely. So, um, look, I think with that, we can uh, wrap up the story and leave the episode here. Hopefully you'll join us next month as we come on to our last of the short, short stories, Grace, before the final story, The Dead. So, uh, hopefully, talk to you soon. I've been Lachlan Coyne. I've been John Clifford. Bye-bye. Thanks.